Hello, Motorspit. I have a question for you. When was the first time you started liking cars? I know, as a child, probably you had uh, you know cars and playing with your favorite toys, but that's not what I mean. When did you start being passionate about it and decided that you will make that your life goal? Bye. Flory, thanks for calling in and asking this question. Um, I appreciate this question because it's super easy for me to answer and I'm going to enjoy it. You mentioned specifically not for me to answer with regard to childhood toys. I don't even need to because it was before I had toys that I knew I was into cars. In fact, being into cars made me ask for the toys. I've got two very early childhood memories of being exposed to motorsport and knowing that that was what I wanted out of life. The first one is watching Formula One on TV and the two cats on the track were Nigel Mansell and Ayrton Senna and they were dicing for position. The red and white McLaren of Senna and the blue, yellow and white Williams Renault of Nigel Mansell, British racing driver. And uh, I was with my dad who is over six foot tall, so as a small child, you know, he looked like a giant to me. And I would have only been maybe one or two years old at this point. Just remembering what those cars were, it's going to be 89, 90, 91 maybe, and I was only born in 88, so I'm not going to be very old. And I remember asking him, Dad, who's the best? And he said, it's Ethan Senna. And I remember watching them after that, taking this information on board and, you know, seeing our guy, Nigel, trying to uh, beat this guy, Senna, who was the best. And I just thought, that's what I want to do. I want to try and beat the guy that's the best. You know, I want to be the best or beat the guy that's the best. And Formula One in those days was very spectacular. I think it's important to realise that as a kid who was so impressionable, I'm watching the fastest, most colourful, most dramatic Formula One cars of all time because they were skittish and they moved around and they darted about and they ducked and weaved and dived and slid and you could see the drivers because there wasn't so much material around the cockpit for safety back then and you could see them wrestle with the wheel and you could see them move around and it was just a, a human thing then you know you that you could have a robot in the car now and you wouldn't know yeah because you can't see the driver working and i just thought i want to that's what i, I want to be that guy in that car making it do those things and as i say it was a colorful time the, the cars were very low to the ground they produced a lot of sparks they were covered in fantastic paint schemes and liveries cigarette advertising was very prevalent back then and it produced some of the best looking cars ever, you know, red and white, Marlboro McLaren. It's absolutely iconic. And it's a simple, you know, white car with two red chevrons on it. it, but it ain't getting mistaken for anything else. And it looked fantastic on the TV screen, um, offset, you know, accented rather by Ayrton Senna's yellow helmet. It was just, the colors popped off the screen and the Williams being multicolored as well, looked fantastic. And like I said, they were ducking and weaving and, and producing all these sparks. And I just thought, that's, that's amazing. You know, that's, that's what I want to do. My second childhood memory of motor racing 
was a little later on, or was it actually? Thinking about the cars, no, it probably wasn't because this memory relates to the Le Mans 24 hours. I remember very clearly watching the cars come out of the Tetra Rouge corner onto Le Unordier, otherwise known as the Mulsan Strait. And the Mulsan Strait is like a dinosaur's spine. It goes up and down and up and down. And it certainly did back then. It's been flattened out a little in recent times. But the vantage point of the camera was looking down this straight at these cars driving down this huge hill. And they were, this was the end of the Group C era. I'm going to say it was 1989, so I'm going to say I was one year old. And the cars that I'm talking about are the silver Mercedes C9. I'm talking... Toyota, Porsche, Jaguar, all of the beasts of the Group C era, headlights ablaze, turning onto the Mulsanne Strait. And you know, there's 40 cars coming on to the Mulsanne for this 24 hour race. And it was just like nothing I'd ever seen. I mean, it's worth remembering that even though the Formula One grids back in that time were bigger than they've ever been or ever would be again. You know, we're talking 36 cars at a Grand Prix. The rate of attrition was very high. So maybe 15, 20 laps into the race, half of them would drop out and maybe less than 10 would finish a Grand Prix distance of, you know, 250 miles, whatever it is, in a, in a two-hour or less race time. And yet these sports cars, there were, you know, 40, 50 of them, and they were constantly going round in a big pack and I just thought well this is this is something different you know the headlights are blaze and just the majesty of the Le Mans circuit as well it's because it was a road you know it's a public road you've got all the mark the road markings you've got the cafes you've got the houses people's driveways the side of the road you've got the street signs um, and of course then you get to night time you start to get the glowing brake discs showing up in the dusk. You get the fireworks and you get the headlights dazzling. And that really captivated me. I thought, wow. You know, that, that was a different thing to watching Mansell and Senna duke it out and thinking, I want to be that guy beating that guy. I didn't feel, when I watched the Le Mans cars, that sort of competitive desire to be the best at my craft I just felt like that that was an environment in which I wanted to belong so those were the things that attracted me to motorsport definitely I've got those two memories very clearly and you know maybe I'm a little wrong on the timing or maybe I saw that footage of the 1989 Le Mans 24 hours three years later when I was a bit older I don't know um, definitely the Formula One memory was live, so maybe that was later on in the 90s, but definitely, you know, that, that was before I started playing with cars and, and pretending that I was driving around the racetracks because I wouldn't have been able to imagine that scenario without having seen it first, right? You also asked when I decided to make it my life goal. Um, that's a more complex question to answer because 
when I was, you know, six, seven, eight years old, I'd sort of grown up enough to have a conscious awareness that this is something I wanted to do. So it was, of course, Dad, can I ride a go-kart? And the answer was no, because you had to be eight years old to ride a go-kart. And although I'm, I'm six foot plus now, I was a very tiny child. So even when I was eight years old, I didn't fit in a go-kart. Like, I couldn't reach the pedals still. Um, not, you know, we found a, a... I remember the first time that I got taken to a go-kart track and that, that I was actually going to do it. And I remember being so excited, it was unreal. And um, I didn't actually enjoy it because I got in the thing and, uh, you know, I didn't know what I was doing, I was just a child. And I knew that I couldn't, I wasn't driving it well. I, you know, I felt like I couldn't do it. And I think at that age, it was just not really having the awareness that I just needed to practice and get more familiar with it. But I think, he, so this is how arrogant I am, right? Even as an eight-year-old, <laughs> I thought I would be immediately fantastic and, and after I turned a lap and realised that I'm not doing what I need to do with this thing, um, it disappointed me. <laughs> so I guess there's an insight into the way my mind works. But that became like the rarest of treats. I think as a young child I went go-karting three or maximum four times between being eight and twelve years old and then between being 12 and, let's see, what was college age, 21, I probably didn't go at all. Like, it just, that wasn't occurring in my life. Um, and, you know, I wanted to race, and I asked my family, can I race? And that wasn't possible, you know. I don't come from a motor racing family. I don't come from a privileged enough family I mean you know don't get me wrong my parents are comfortable but they're not rolling in cash to fund a racing career that's for sure and I it was a really hard thing for me to swallow as a child like you can't you're not going to get to do this you know this is the only thing you ever wanted to do and you're not going to get to do it I mean, I had other interests because every child kicks a football around and, you know, things of that nature. Later on as a sort of a pre-teen, teenager, I was interested in skateboarding and sort of extreme sports, but never to the same, you know, they were just like interests. They weren't passions. And it was, I, I remember how hard it was for me to accept that, I wouldn't get to do what I wanted to do. And I didn't feel, you know, as a child, uh, a young adult, whatever you want to say, I was in a position to be able to do anything about it. Like, I'm, I mean, you, you know me, Flory, if I want to go and do something, I'll go and do it. Like, but back then, you don't have that mentality as a child. Well, I didn't, anyway. And I think it became sort of final for me. I remember going to the Autosport International show, which... Uh, my dad took me to fairly regularly uh, as a young boy, which is, a, if any of you don't know what autosport is, it's a big racing car exhibition that takes place every year, conveniently in my home city of Birmingham. Um, so that was cool. And we used to go, not every year, but, you know, reasonably often. And I remember being 12 or 13, 
and there was a stand there for a new series at that time called tea cars and these were saloon cars sedans based on the ford sierra momac if you're listening you know where i'm going with this and uh, it was a racer designed for young drivers so uh, aged between 12 and 16. as how was you 12 or 13. And I knew I'd missed out on the car thing, like, it was gone. And I said, Dad, what about this, what about this, you know, round two, ding, ding. And he, you know, talked to the guy for a bit, and I wasn't really that confident. I mean, I didn't know what the conversation was, I was a kid. I wasn't really confident about where it was going. And this T-Car series was all I could think about for the next few days, but I didn't want to push my dad on it to say, you know, well, what did you think, you know, what did you talk about with the man? Because I wouldn't say I was scared of my dad, but, you know, you're a kid, you respect your dad. Dad's the boss, he makes the rules, he he makes the decisions, and you can't go <laughs> poking the wasp, so to speak. So I was kind of um, in his shadow a little bit, you know, nervous and eager to understand because I knew this was like this is really the last chance and um, after a couple of days I just said you know what about the tea cars do you remember can we do it can we do it and he just said you know Gary we can't do it and like that killed it for me then and it wasn't like um, it wasn't a Ralph Wiggum heartbreak moment or anything but I just knew solemnly that it was over like that's it. Nothing else is going to happen. I've already been uh, sold down the path that carton's too expensive. This, I, I, even at that age, I was aware that this T-Car series was not the same level of sort of professionalism and, um, how shall we say, competitive grandeur as karting was. It was more of a, a clubman thing, an entry-level thing, or you know, one of those things I knew was more accessible. And when he said that that could not be done, I just thought, well, it can't be done. It can't be done. And that was it. And then after that time, until I started university, I'd never thought that I would do any motorsport ever. I just, I raised that thought from my mind. I still was obviously extremely passionate about it. I watched it on TV every time it was on. And I talked about it with some of my friends that were interested in motorsport, particularly my cousin, uh, Andy, who I grew up with. He was as passionate about it as I was. And we saw each other a lot as kids, so we were always talking about racing. Um, but it was just, an in, it became an interest for me. I was, I was passionate about interest, but it, I didn't think, you know, this is going to be my life. I just thought, well, you know, Dad likes golf and I like cars and that's it. Except he got to play golf. <laughs> But, yeah, like I say, um, I kind of just did my own thing growing up as a teenager. And I'd, the thing is, looking back now, which is easy, if I'd have just saved a few weeks' allowance, I could have gone karting. Like, not seriously, but I could have done a bit, you know, just to get myself out on the track and enjoy myself. But I think because of the way I'd almost been conditioned as a child, I don't, I don't quite think that's the wrong word, it seems a little strong to use, but I, I'd been sold the line that karting is too expensive, so that's what I believed, like, I didn't, 
I didn't even, I didn't even know what the figures were, but I was told as a small child, we can't afford to take you go-karting. So that was my belief, like regardless of what the actual situation was. So I never revisited that notion again. I was like, no, I can't, it's too expensive. I didn't even knew what, didn't know what it costs, you know? <laughs> um, but I just, I went through my teenage years thinking, you know, this, this is it. I don't have an outlet to go racing. It's, it costs too much. It's something I'll never have. And that was my honest belief. And that changed when I started um, university. And when I joined the karting society. And of course, when you're in college, when you're in university, you've got your student loan to burn, right? So I didn't care what it cost. I was like, I've got some money that I'm probably meant to be spending on textbooks. But again, I, <laughs> with the arrogance, I knew that I knew about cars. So I was like, well, I'm probably smart enough to buy a couple of books and max that out rather than buy them all and, you know, compile more than I need to just to try and make up for my lack of smarts or whatever. So I started karting with a university. But again, as soon as that finished, I thought it was finished. I was like, well, I'm not in university anymore, therefore I don't have access to this championship. I don't have money anymore, therefore I can't afford it, you know. Back to the lab again, yo, and that, that was my honest belief at that time. The real sort of switch in the mind came for me when I drove the Formula Atlantic out in Canada, and I described this in my other podcast called My Racing Passion, so I'm not going to repeat it here, but to touch on it briefly, I got the chance to drive a Formula Atlantic race car out near Toronto, and that experience concreted that this was what I was put on the earth to do. It was just so natural, um, pure, absolute connectivity with the machinery, with the road. It's To describe this in terms of philosophy, um, my close friends will know that I admire Alan Watts. And one of the things that he's talked about is that our language structure tricks us into believing what things actually are. So to relate that concept directly to me racing cars, if I say come out with the sentence, I race cars, that, that sentence has three components. It requires me, it requires the act of racing the verb, and it requires a car, you know, a, a secondary subject in the sentence um, but what he describes as that there's only racing and that is an action that all of those things are involved in in unison it's a process there is only the process there isn't the separate entities and I definitely felt that way when I was driving that car I was like this is just it like this is this is going on um, but again, I I got out of the car. I thought, well, that was a once-in-a-lifetime experience. I've affirmed to myself that I was born to be a racing driver, and now I'm going back to never going to get to be one. And again, I believed that at the time. So up until this point, you'll have noticed, if you've listened carefully, I know this has been a long haul, but stick with me, um, that every one of my defining moments has come with a a crushing downer on the other side. Um, you know, knowing that 
this this won't be something that I'm going to get to spend my life doing. Things changed for me when I started my second full-time job and I was being paid well enough that... Well, the story goes like this. My f- Paul started the same job as me on the same day as me. We'd raced together in university. I knew he was a go-kart racer. And, you know, a few months into the job, he said, I'm going to start karting again now. And I knew the level that he raced at, which was very high. And I knew that entry-level cars, for schmucks like me, were pretty much the same price as top-level karting, or even cheaper than top-level karting. And I thought, well, if he can do it, I can do it. Let's go. Uh, And I made a, a few phone calls and started investigating how I could start racing within the United Kingdom. Um, Did a couple of track days, went to a few races, trying to figure out what I most enjoyed doing. I figured that out. I went and got my race license. Um, That was a bit of a a proud moment, you know, that was a pinch myself moment. Not because I've achieved anything, because quite frankly, anyone could turn up and get a race license. You don't have to actually be good. You just have to not crash and know the flags so um i wasn't you know pleased with how i did in the test or whatever although i did think naturally that i drove quite well um but i thought you know this is this is it wasn't a big time but it, it, it felt like the big time you know i'd hit i got a racing license i've got a little piece of plastic the size of a business card it's got the fia logo on it i mean that's huge you know if I'm trying to relate this to something for the audience that will most likely be listening to this. Imagine getting, you know, official documentation from the NFL that you're in with the crowd. Do you know what I mean? Like, that that was massive for me, to get that card with my picture on it and my name that said Race National B. It had the FIA logo on it. I was just like, well, you know, that's awesome. That's so cool. And uh, bought my race car specced it up and um yeah rolling rolling that out at donington park plain red i remember absolutely nothing going on here uh in my plain black suit and plain white helmet that was a special day for me and again i've highlighted touched upon in my safe podcasts now exactly what makes it special to drive out onto a racing track for the first time and all the kind of emotions and experiences that i had partaking in that first race and doing that first season and uh, experiences I've had since where I've been walking around the paddock thinking there's absolutely nowhere else I would rather be right now even if I'm having a bad day you know I just get that feeling because that's my natural habitat shall we say um, that's where I belong it's where I'm most comfortable it's where I'm buzzing I'm alive I'm pumped up and I'm ready to do my thing out on the track so having done it for a few years now, and you know, let, let's be clear about one thing. I think when you're outside of something, you have certain perspectives and certain expectations about what it's going to live up to be. And then when you get inside the ropes, you know, when you get backstage and you realise how it really is, you know, and I'm not talking about the 13 minutes you spend on the tarmac, I'm talking about the rest of what you have to do, what you have to go to, and what motor racing really looks like from the person that's involved. Because there's a, there's a lot more to it than sitting in the seat and driving around the track. 
you know there's a lot more to it than that and having experienced all of that now um it has been concreted for me like there's absolutely nothing i would rather be doing there's no place i would rather be than at the track than in the car you know in in the car when the visor's down that's my zone i'm by myself i'm doing my thing you know that's that's pure sort of bliss for me and all of that has definitely been confirmed having now done it for a few years so in a weird way the answer to your question you know when were you certain that this was what you wanted to do with your life there's two answers you know from when i was aged one and a half versus right now having done it for a few years and definitely made the decision yes this is definitely what i want to do um that's it i hope that's a sufficient answer i will say right now to anyone if you've listened to the entire uh duration for the last five calls um you're a hero you have my respect and my appreciation as well uh, if you did i would really dig it if you could just put in the text comments i did um that would mean the world to me so uh, if you did listen to me talking about uh, discovering racing being my thing solidly for the last i don't know 20 minutes or so uh, please put a comment in the text i did and um I'll find some way of acknowledging your awesomeness. Things as they stand now, well, you know, I I ain't doing British GT. I'm not racing internationally. I'm not being paid to do it. I'm still struggling to pay my own bills uh, to go racing. Uh, but that's just now, you know. Um, I'll do what it takes to do it, always. I still feel very much that I'm only at the start of the whole journey, very much at the beginning. But there's no change in focus now for me, you know, this is it. I already know this is what I'm meant to do, so I ain't spending any time on entertaining the notion of doing anything else. And if I can't do it every week, I can't do it every week. If I can only do it once a year, I can only do it once a year. If I go out on the track next time and write the car off and can't afford to hire one or build another one for another three years then that's the case I'll be back in three years and you'll be hearing from me again you know I'd, I'll just have to take the ride as it comes and you know on the other hand if I win the lottery tomorrow then I'm going to be out of the track every weekend and, and everything I can afford to be in and although the lottery win probably won't go that far to be honest so it's just one of them and I just got to do my thing, keep focused on following my heart, following my passion. I'll see where I get. Don't forget, guys and girls, if you did listen to this entire monologue, uh, please leave a comment and let me know that you did. And uh, if I don't get any comments, then I'll know I'm a boring ass mofo. <laughs> Flory, thanks for asking the question and I hope you've enjoyed the answers.